Welcome to the Debit This, Credit That podcast with Wheeler Accountants, located in San Jose, California. In this podcast, we discuss how to solve accounting challenges in both your personal life and your business. We take an energetic, tech-savvy approach to solving accounting challenges that steal your focus and your time. Now, on to the show with your tech-savvy accounting experts, Matt Wheeler and Michael Bryant. Welcome to episode 34 of the Debit This, Credit That podcast by Wheeler Accountants with your hosts, Matt Wheeler and Michael Bryant. Today, we have another guest on the podcast, Eric Rodriguez. Eric is the founder and financial advisor at Wealth Builders LLC, a registered investment advisory firm focused on comprehensive financial planning here in Silicon Valley. Eric is dedicated to helping working professionals and families get ahead financially by offering objective advice. Eric is a local guy, graduated from San Jose State University and received his personal financial planning certificate from UCLA. He lives in the Silicon Valley with his wife, two children, and two dogs. Eric enjoys spending time with family, playing golf, and traveling. Eric, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, welcome, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk about Henry's and Millennials. Henry is a new term to me, actually, like not not that long ago, but you want to give us a, a definition of what a Henry is? Sure. So Henry stands for high earner, not rich yet. <laughs> <laughs> so typically, and it's, a, it's a loose definition, but typically a Henry is anyone that earns a quarter million dollars up to 500000 So it could be an individual, could be a family, but these are the folks that, you know, potentially in the future have the potential to be very, very wealthy, just given their income potential and their trajectory that they're on. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty common demographic here in Silicon Valley, it feels like, right? We got a lot of these young engineers mm-hmm. coming in or young professionals, you know, any like sort of service professional, that kind of stuff located here, making good money, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, anywhere else in the country, people be like, oh man, you're rich. <laughs> <laughs> but the cost of living is obviously very high here in the Bay Area. And, yes. you know, that's where the not rich yet part comes in, huh? Yes, exactly. It's very subjective depending on where you live. <laughs> so, uh, what, what are some of like the top financial challenges that you see Henry's facing in, in this area? Well, it, it's cliche, but number one, I would say not being able to purchase a home here in the Silicon Valley or in an expensive area, right? Whether it's Bay Area, Los Angeles, New York City, et cetera. You, know, you, you, you think you're, of yourself as making a lot of money and you're doing great. You have a great job. However, you still can't qualify for a loan or you can't purchase a home in the area that you really want to purchase in. So that is a big challenge with a lot of my customers, a lot of my clients is wanting to purchase a home, but they can't yet. And it's difficult for them to understand that, you know, even with all this money they're making every month, the take home is not what they think. So it's educating them on cash flow and how to better manage that so they can be in a position where they could buy or maybe it doesn't make sense for them to buy. Is qualifying a loan like one of the major impediments or is the down payment part, you know, really difficult, yeah. the down payment on the obviously like, you know, a million dollar yeah. million sales <laughs> price I've ever heard. A million dollars, yeah. that's a tear down here. <laughs> it really is. So the down payment is usually the biggest culprit. So, you know, most folks can afford the the monthly payment, you know, essentially if they're renting now, the rents are almost as high as a regular mortgage payment now. So mm-hmm. it's not it's not a matter of actually affording the monthly payment, but it's getting that down payment. And, you know, a lot of my clients live in San Francisco or on the peninsula and, you know, median home price there is anywhere from, you know, 1.5 to $2 million. So 
our advice is always you want to try to put down at least 20% to avoid the private mortgage insurance. Right. That's usually a stretch without having to tap any retirement accounts and you know trigger any tax and any other investments. But also what people don't realize is there's more expenses that come with just your down payment, right? There's your know, real estate costs, there's furnishing the house, which I think is highly underrated. We don't <laughs> talk about it a lot. <laughs> I know when my wife and I purchased our house, it was, you know, we had a certain budget in mind and it, it ended up being a lot higher than what yeah. we had budgeted for. So just triple whatever you were planning. That's probably more realistic. Exactly. <laughs> and and one of the things I, I tell my clients is, you know, you don't want to just buy a house and, and be house poor. You want to be able to buy a house, afford it comfortably and furnish it the way you want it to be furnished, you know, make it feel homey and decorate it. I mean, that's kind of the joys of be- being a homeowner, right? Not the sparse Ikea decorating style. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into budgeting in a second. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so down payment obviously is a, is a problem for a lot of people yeah. that comes up a lot in our practice where mm-hmm. um, actually one of the things we probably have a podcast at some point in the future is kind of ways that sometimes the parents help out in the down payment because mm-hmm. that, you know, the down payments are so large here and they want their you know, adult children now to stay in the area, but it's like they're looking to maybe move it away because they can't yeah. afford it, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, there are ways to do that tax efficiently, but without Absolutely. that, just it's good old fashioned saving up. Right? Yeah, it's, it's good old fashioned saving up. And I think it's also, you know, thinking of thinking in, in, in realistic terms. Okay. Um, you know, I'm only 25 or I'm 35, what have you. Do I really need to buy a $2 million house now or a $1.5 million house now? You know, the the first home out the gate doesn't have to be a home run, right? It doesn't have to be your dream house. So I always consult with folks and say, you know, there's there's places here in the Bay Area, for example, where you could buy. You can afford it comfortably and you can buy. It's just not going to be in downtown Palo Alto, you know? <laughs> it's not going to be in Los Gatos. But, you know, I have some clients that, you know, have many other goals besides buying a home. They have retirement. They have, you know, paying off debts and they have kids they have to worry about now. And so, you know, it's it's a trade-off between, okay, maybe I'll live in a different area. I can actually purchase a home versus living, you know, in the most popular area, which is also the most expensive. So it's just really just level setting on what's most important to you. And I think we were talking about that before too, is why do you even want to buy a house? Right. <laughs> because everyone else is. Because everyone's doing it, right? <laughs> and I think we'll talk about that later as well. But I think it's important to understand why do you even want to buy a house? Yeah, I think there's some sort of like problem. There's like a mental roadblock with because prices are so expensive. It feels like it can't possibly cost this much for just like a starter <laughs> house somewhere. Therefore, I may as well go for my forever house. Yeah. And I think there's like some of that going on where that's why people maybe you're just trying to aim a little higher. And, and because they're like, I can't can't be 900 grand for a starter <laughs> townhouse, you know, like I should be able to just for that. I should be able to do more. But that's the reality of the area that we live in now. There's just yeah. there's a lot of demand. There's not very much supply. Sure. We had Brandon Knapp on our podcast like earlier this year. He's a mortgage broker and he was mm-hmm. talking about how there's only like, you know, less than a thousand homes on the market in Silicon Valley at that wow. time of the year was just like. Yeah, well, it was like four or five times that (laughs) amount of buyers. (laughs) Right. So, you know, one, do you even need a house, Mm -hmm. right? Is Or do you even need to own a house is is a question number one, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of we talk about with clients, do you really need an entity for your business? Can you be a sole proprietor and be like, don't go through all the extra hoops if you don't need to or can't afford the cost and that kind of stuff. But if if you do need a house, you are at that point and you're trying to, you have built up a down payment, you can buy a house. Now you're 
um, annual cost of living has gone up a little bit because you're paying for your mortgage, your property taxes, the maintenance on the house, mm-hmm. the insurance, all that kind of stuff. You need a little yeah. bit of a rainy day fund. Mm-hmm. How do you approach that with your clients or with the Henrys? You know, what are your mm-hmm. suggestions for for managing expenses? Yeah. So ultimately, what I believe in is everyone getting a comprehensive financial plan because a mortgage is just one part of your of your your balance sheet and your expenses, right? There are many other expenses that come up when you own a home. You know, you got to make sure you have an emergency fund. You just never know when something's going to go wrong. And it always will. And it always will. <laughs> <laughs> Even with newer homes. Right. You know, I'll save that for another podcast. But the <laughs> situation <laughs> happened with us with a newer home. And, you know, we had to go through a full-blown remodel after two years, you know, because yeah. my pipe burst. Okay. You know, so you just never know what could happen. So getting a comprehensive financial plan and understanding your expenses, your cash flow management, because I, I find another challenge that Henry's have in millennials is not budgeting properly and not understanding their cash flow. And it's really easy to essentially spend more than what you bring in because it feels like you're, you're, you're making so much money. You know, when you're getting checks for 10 grand, 15 grand a month, and it's the most money you've ever made in your entire life, it's very difficult to, to be disciplined and save and live within your means. So getting a comprehensive financial plan, getting a budget in place that makes sense for you. I know one of the ratios we use as financial advisors is, you know, you want your your mortgage ratio, mortgage to income ratio to be under 28%. So it's really easy to figure that out. So you take your 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 monthly mortgage costs with your taxes and insurance and all that and you divide that by your monthly gross income, your pre-tax income. And if that number is over 28%, then that's a clear indication that you can't afford that that right. house. And you should obviously be doing that before you buy the house. Correct. Yeah, a, l- <laughs> a little late once you're making those yeah. mortgage payments. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the budgeting thing is hard, and I think the it's it's different now. You know, mm-hmm. you think back to maybe like when we were like really small kids, or even like our parents' generation when they were smaller, and it was like, you know, once a month maybe or whatever. They're like sitting down at the kitchen table <laughs> and they have the bills and they're like reconciling the checking account and writing checks. And now it's just like auto pay, auto pay, yeah. swipe the debit card, swipe the credit card, pay the credit card thing. And it's so easy to spend mm-hmm. the money. It's so much more convenient now. Yeah. And there's a lot more like microtransactions, especially yes. now with like Amazon and everything. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm just going to order this with one click on my phone. You know, it's going <laughs> to come. So you're not like going to the grocery store once a week and spending X mm-hmm. amount you have in your head and how much you're going to spend to budget. It's yeah. you're just spending little amounts all the time. And unless you spend the time to sit back and do a little bit of analysis and reflect on how much you've actually been spending. People are like yeah. surprised how much you're spending. You know, mm-hmm. you need to actually spend a little bit of time, go over what you've been spending, use some software that can help you track that and aggregate it for you. And there are good ones out there. You probably have some great recommendations. Yeah, what, yeah. what would you recommend, Eric? Yeah, good question. So just kind of piggyback on that. So right, we're in the digital age. So essentially no one uses cash anymore. So it's really simple to swipe a card, swipe a debit card, or you know people have Apple Pay on their phones and, and so forth, so forth. So you even have to be more on it from a budgeting perspective. And I always tell folks that every single day you should do some type of check-in, even if it's like one or two minutes a day. And there's a lot of apps out there that you can use. I know that as an investment advisor, we have our own software that we give our clients, but I know there's a lot of free ones out there like Mint.com was notorious. Mm-hmm. For, and they're still probably the best, you know, aggregator. And I'm not endorsing them or anything like that. But right. I was that was the I was one of the early adopters to Mint.com. And basically, what it is a digital place where you can aggregate all your accounts and you can track your expenses and you can see, you know, where your money's going every every single month. And there's a bunch of others 
out there, but that would probably be the most user-friendly, I think, and I think it looks the best right now versus what you know a lot of advisors might have proprietary that they give to their, their right. clients. But just you got to use something that's yeah doing a little bit of that legwork for you, mm-hmm. and they do a pretty good job, like autom- automatically categorizing yeah. certain you know common expenses and that kind of stuff. And, mm-hmm. and setting setting a realistic budget in Mint.com also helps a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a, it's a, a first step at least, so you can be like, <laughs> wow, I had no idea I spend this much at Starbucks mm-hmm. or at Whole Foods or you know wherever you're eating going out. Yeah, yeah eating out. Yeah, it, it creeps up. I mean, I do this for a living. It creeps up on you. And the other day. I asked my wife if she wanted to go to Starbucks and she says, we spend too much money on Starbucks. And I said, no, we don't. We're, I think we spent like a couple hundred bucks last year. So she goes on our app and she runs a report. We spent a thousand dollars on Starbucks last wow. year. <laughs> and I said, yep, I guess we'll just go, let's go ahead and skip the coffee today. Yeah. But having that data there at, at your fingertips, it really does help, you know, but it's, it takes some effort. It takes some effort to log in your app and just spend a couple minutes, a couple times a week, just see where you're at and, also, too, it's not even so much budgeting. Sometimes maybe it's identity theft or something like that. I've been a victim of identity theft three times. Oh, my <laughs> God. So there's a lot of uh, Eric Rodriguez's out there. <laughs> but, you know, I use the apps religiously every single day because I've been that person where I logged in. And I'm like, oh, my Lord, there is a $20,000 charge. Or there, wow. there was there was $2,000 in my account. Now it's gone. And so more so for that, too. It's, it's good just a couple times a week. Just go on there every day if you can. Yeah. Pay attention. Yeah. Notice. And, I mean, even stuff as simple as like you sign up for some sort of subscription thing that's like renewing constantly and you don't even use it at all anymore. Mm-hmm. You got to pay attention to that kind of stuff. Otherwise, you're like, spending money for no reason. Oh, yeah. Like the free magazines that my <laughs> wife signed up for. And then uh, <laughs> the next year they're charging us thirty five dollars for a renewal on our credit card. I'm like, oh, that's not free. Yeah. <laughs> Well, gym gym memberships are or gyms are notorious for that, right? Get you on auto pay. And yeah. You just forget about it. <laughs> and so we're talking. Those are really good tips for like managing the small expenses and the budgeting and that kind of stuff. But I try and tell clients the really big value in using like a financial advisor is they're going to go over some of the big dollar items with you, and those are going to make the biggest impact. I mean, I always see those articles on like Yahoo or whatever right. where it's like, you know, if you you know, make your own coffee instead of buying coffee today, you're going to save $2 a day kind of thing. Yeah, it's great. So that'll save me a couple hundred bucks for the year. But, you know, you may be spending thousands more than you need Mm -hmm. to on, you know, being overinsured or, you know, having too much house for what you can afford. Or there could be something else where you're spending way too much money. And you, in my mind, you want to tackle the big items first. And that's where sitting down with a professional who can go over your entire situation with you Mm -hmm. and do a comprehensive financial plan is so valuable because they'll be able to point out to you, like, you know, you're spending... 40% 40% of your income on rent instead of 28 we want to see and to find a cheaper place, you know, or make more money, you know, one of the exactly. two, right? So mm-hmm. that's why I was going to try and push them toward like a financial advisor. It's like you got to, yeah. got to use someone who can, whose experience can help yeah. you out on the big dollar items. And that's a, that's a great point too. And when I meet with clients, I always use the metaphor of trying to get in financial shape. It's the same way as getting in, you know, physical shape. Mm-hmm. And when you're on a, one of those fad diets, you know, where you're like eating no sugar, no carbs, no this, no that. It's not sustainable. It's very difficult to say, okay, from here on out for the rest of my life, I'm never going to eat sugar again, never going to have a beer, never have a glass of wine, never going to do this, that, whatever. Right. It's it's unrealistic. And so the same goes for budgeting. I think that, you know, you have a lot, there's a lot of, you know, famous advisors out there. They sell books and they talk about what you were talking about, you know, 
if you spend five dollars on coffee every day, you're going to go broke or you're just not being fiscally responsible. But I I disagree. I think that it, it you're right. It's the bigger expenses. And so when we put together budgets, we always leave a percentage, call it 30 percent or 20, 30 percent or so that you can use for whatever you want. If you want to go shopping, you should go shopping. If mm-hmm. you want to go out to dinner with your friends, you should go out to dinner. And, uh, and I think that's I know it's helped a lot of clients I have. It's helped myself to stick to the long term plan, you know, which is to ultimately have enough money saved where you can decide if you want to work or not later on. Yeah. Build build some entertainment into the budget like yeah. you would build a cheat day into your diet or whatever. Exactly. Right. You know, yeah, you got to have something in there to look forward to. Otherwise, you know, it's going to be bland. You're going to get sick of it and you're going to you mm-hmm. know, stop doing it. Basically. Exactly. Hard to stay disciplined when it's so boring. Yeah. <laughs> What about student loans? A lot of people come out of school with a lot of student loan debt, obviously a big topic just nationwide, how much student loan debt there is out there. How do you help clients manage their student loans and helping to pay down their student debts? Yeah, student loans, definitely heavy weight on everyone's shoulders right now that's graduating. I think the last time I checked, the average student loans about 37K across the nation, which uh, is significant. And, you know, right now the student loan debt is at now at 1.5 trillion dollars and that's <laughs> that's increased that's increased significantly just in the past 5 years so meeting with somebody now and getting an understanding of how to tackle these loans is more important now than ever because you have the potential just to spiral out of control and it could be very daunting to think about paying off this loan in the next 20 30 plus years and so a couple of things i think first off if you have student loans and you went to school, congratulations, you got an education, that's good debt. So there's good debt and bad debt. Student loans are good debt, just like a home mortgage is good debt. Essentially, these you're building equity or it's gonna help you generate income you know, over your lifetime versus bad debt, credit cards and car loans. So that's, that's first and foremost is understanding what you have. And there's a ton of startups out there that are offering you to like consolidate your loans or refinance your loans and so forth. And you can get baited in to take advantage of one of these student loan refis or something like that. But what I always, again, it goes back to, well, let's, let's see what you have because you might be in a position where your loan's going to be forgiven, you know, in 25 or 30 years. So there's no need to rush to to pay it off. right? Right. Most people have federal loans. And when I say most people, I guess I'll just say, you know, 60, 70% of folks have federal loans. And with federal loans, you don't want to hire a private startup and you don't want to consolidate them because when you have a federal loan, they'll work with you if you have an issue where you can't pay or if you want to negotiate a lower rate or something like that. Like they're more flexible versus a private company. And we'll get we can talk more about that. But basically what I always tell clients is, look, let's let's put the student loan debt on the shelf for a second. Let's talk about where you want to be 20, 30 years from now. And everybody like clockwork most of the time says, well, I hopefully not have to work anymore and I'm retired and I live in a vacation home on the beach or, you know, whatever it is they say. <laughs> the and ultimate American. Yeah, the ultimate American dream. And I always talk about saving now because I think that's highly underrated. I don't think we talk about that much right now, which is why from from millennial perspective, you know, the savings rates are so low. It's less than 1%, right? 
80% of millennials have zero saved right now. And that includes their checking account and savings. Wow. And everyone's living check to paycheck. So when you get in the workforce, most most companies offer some type of retirement plan. So I talk about let's start saving money, even if it's $50 a month to get started, $100 a month, $200 a month, just something to get started. You're not even going to miss a beat. And then when you look up 20, 30 years from now, that's a difference between you having a half million or a million dollar save versus zero. Because the misconception with student loan debt is I got to pay it off now. It's like this itch, right? right. Got to pay it off now. And I'm going to take all of my hard earned money and all my bonuses and everything. And I'm going to throw it down and pay off my student loans. But if you're if you're in your 20s and 30s, that's the worst thing you could do because the law of compounding interest is now working against you. You don't have money working for you, you know, and Albert, yeah. Albert Einstein said, you know, he came out with the rule 72, eighth wonder of the world. Basically, you know, the law of compounding interest, if you use it to your advantage, then you're going to be financially independent someday. So just getting people to understand how to have your money work for you at a younger age, even if it's a small amount, I like to set that up first because the biggest regret, and there's studies by the Consumer Financial Bureau that say that the biggest regret millennials have is they started saving too late. They mm-hmm. wish they would have started saving right when they got a job. So that's number one. Number two is if you have federal loans, and I guess I'm speaking to the majority, now they have income-based payment plans. So it's not so much a fixed payment that you have to pay every month and you're tied to like this big payment, like a car loan or something like that. And now you have this big, you know, nut you have to pay every month. Well, it's tied to your income. So when you get a pay raise, then you'll pay a little bit more. If you lose your job or you make less money, then you'll pay a little bit less, but it's much more sustainable and a better way to go about paying off your loans that way. And if you don't have an income-based plan, I would, I would get on it right away. Cause is that automatically adjusted like annually or something, or do you yeah. self-report the income change or how does that work? Yeah, it's, it's, it, it really depends on your profession essentially, but, um, it's really your responsibility to report it. Okay. Yeah. But at least it scales along with your income. So mm-hmm income goes up, you can afford to pay more and it'll pay it off a little faster. Mm-hmm. But if you fall on hard times or whatever, it'll decrease at least. So mm-hmm. makes sense. And that also makes sense. I mean, starting wages are going to be a little bit lower when you first get out of college. And then the hope is that your your yeah. wages would increase over time. Yeah. And it, and again, it's situational. I mean, if, if you already have some private loans also, then it might make sense to actually work with one of the startups out there and consolidate your loans and get a lower rate. And and again, that's the value of working with a professional to help you make those strategic decisions. So you help with that analysis and, and mm-hmm. kind of make recommendations from there. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you want to tackle the student loan debt, but you're looking at it in terms of your broader budgeting overall, mm-hmm. which includes, you know, where you want to be. Let's kind of work backwards from there. Mm-hmm. A logical approach on how to achieve a goal, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then factoring in not only paying down the student debt, but all your other current expenses as well as saving, like you mentioned, which is super important, right? Getting some savings started early on, get the compound interest working in your favor, take advantage of like an employer match if they exactly. match on your 401k or something, mm-hmm. which is like free money, basically. Totally so you, free. Exactly. you don't want to and it's tax deferred until you pull the money out. So you don't pay any tax on that part currently. You right. save current tax on putting money in the 401k plan. So it's tax efficient. Mm-hmm. And one thing a lot of people, I think, forget about, this kind of goes back to the down payment thing. So you're looking to qualify for a loan. Not only do you need the down payment, you got to show reserves for a certain period of time to right. make the payments. You can't just like just have barely the 20% and then have nothing left over when it's all said and done. They right. want you to have some reserves. 
and you can use your retirement accounts towards part of that reserves. So it's not like you need to save everything out of the retirement account for a down payment for a house. You should be saving in the retirement account and then also saving outside the retirement account mm -hmm. for the down payment for the house. Exactly. And I and what I find also with this group of Henry's is a lot of folks don't take advantage of the match. They don't take advantage of the 401k at all. And what I'm finding now is that a lot of companies are investing in financial wellness and financial literacy. One, because they want more participation into the 401k because particip participation rates are at an all-time low. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that has to do with cost of living. <laughs> folks are just trying to get by, especially here, Silicon Valley. And the second part about that too is, you know, there's so much financial stress in the workplace and it's resulting in decreased productivity in the workplace. So I remember reading Wall Street Journal had article about two years ago. It said like the average employee spends about six hours a month dealing with a financial issue or some type of stressful issue. Mm -hmm. And what that one employee costs the employer, you know, over a five-year period, it was, you know, well over 50000 So if you multiply that by a company, I'm just throwing out like Hewlett Packard that has 50,000 plus employees, I mean, it could get really it's expensive. It's pretty substantial. Right? <laughs> it's very expensive. And, you know, it's just one of those things that, unfortunately, we don't learn about financial literacy in school growing up. You know, most people learn about money when they're filing their first divorce or filing the first bankruptcy. That's when they really learn about money. And again, it's like why I'm so passionate about what I do, because even the one even, you know, I have clients across the spectrum um, and even the ones that make a lot of money still deal with the same issues that someone that makes, you know, thirty thousand, forty thousand dollars a year. They deal with the same issues. Right. Yeah. It makes sense that the companies are investing in the financial literacy and they probably have a lot of programs that you can take take advantage of. Mm -hmm. One interesting thing is that uh, I know Stephen DeBros with Primark Benefits, he goes to. Washington DC, lots of lobby. They're pushing for like one of the thing. It's where they basically you like have to opt out of going into the 401k plan at work, but the default is that you opt in. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of just like an inertia thing. The same thing is like I it's guess like those magazine subscriptions that once you're in, you just <laughs> just keep going, right? It's true. Well, I was gonna say like I think it's France or some country over in Europe or for organ donation, mm -hmm. it's an opt out policy. You don't need to opt in, and they have yeah. obviously a much higher participation rate in the organ donation program because people are too lazy to opt out. And so the same right. concept kind of applies to like a 401k thing. It's like, well, if the default is you're opted in and you have to actually opt out to not be part of the plan, more people would be saving and that yeah. kind of thing. Interesting thought, you yeah, know, it is you still have like thought. a choice, yeah. but you know, people basically are just lazy is what it boils I, down to. I, I love it. I, I think that's the, the greatest thing a, an employer can do is have that automated. So no one has to even think about that, you know, and, and the default rates are low. I think they're like some of them are three percent of your income. You don't even that you don't you won't skip a beat. Yeah. The problem is to me, the lack of financial literacy and people just think in terms of their net paycheck and they don't think in terms of their gross paycheck, yeah. which also kind of pisses me off about income tax withholding, where I feel like people <laughs> don't understand how much they're actually paying in taxes. And if right. they did, they'd be more upset. <laughs> Whenever Once you go self-employed, you got to start writing quarterly checks to the yeah, government you're like painful. you're like damn it this is, i can't believe i'm paying this much in taxes well everyone is yeah you know at that income level but you're now you're actually physically cutting the check and it hurts so much more yeah and then you get you think about it way more and so that's the problem with the withholding system and the net paycheck is people just think to the net paycheck and they're not looking at their gross income mm -hmm. which is really how much you're actually earning on a gross level right. and then your net 
take-home pay is much different, deducted for all kinds of things. Right. One thing you wanted to talk about that we should probably get into next is understanding the workplace benefits available to people, mm-hmm. especially a lot of the larger companies in our area where a lot of our you know Henry clients work. They have yeah. a lot of really substantial benefits available to them, but it can be very confusing to navigate, and they may not know all the ins and outs of the tips and tricks. I even find like my my non-Henry, just like wealthy clients that are mm-hmm. making lots of money fail to take advantage of like very simple things at work because they're just basically too busy right. and don't take the time to understand it and having someone to tell them what to do or you know explaining why it's important mm-hmm. be the little nudge they need to go ahead and do it and they'll save you know it can be thousands of dollars or you sure. know whatever so what are some of the things you yeah. see that your your clients encounter in terms of benefits and then how they can take advantage of that well well number one the 401k understanding the 401k you have a pre-tax option you have a roth option do you understand the match? Oftentimes, no one knows how much they're getting matched. <laughs> so it's right. find, finding that out because you don't want to miss the free money. And to your point, you want to put in as much as you can, but at minimum, put in what they match to get that that free money. So the 401k, also healthcare benefits, it, it can be very confusing, especially with legislation and so forth and understanding what plans are best for you. And I think that a lot of millennials and Henry's most of the time they have plans that are they're too rich for them at this point in life. So some some folks may already have kids and they don't need a rich plan anymore. They don't they go to the doctor maybe once a year for, you know, checkups or, or what have you. They're, they're you know, mm-hmm. otherwise relatively healthy. healthy. Yeah. They shouldn't be paying, you know, a, they shouldn't be paying a lot relative to other plans that are available. They should be maybe in like a high deductible health care plan, something that will cover you know, those annual checkups and, you know, routine, uh, you know, dental procedures and cleaning and stuff like that. Right. And then having the HSA, the health savings account attached to that, you know, gives them an opportunity to save more into that account. Those are obviously pre-tax. So you get a deduction for that. And it's unlike a, a flexible spending account, a flexible spending account, you have to use the money by the end of the year, mm-hmm. a healthcare savings account, you can roll it into next year and the year after that, year after that, et cetera. So that's something that gets really overlooked by this demographic that I think they should take advantage of. What about the de- dependent care benefits when both spouses are working? I see that one quite often where they're not taking advantage of that. And that's a you can put up to five grand in there if you're married for child care, which, right. you know, that's a deduction from your income, five thousand bucks. And if you're in like near the top tax bracket or like a fairly high tax bracket, you're going to save, you know, 35, 40 percent of that. You know, which is Substantial. a couple thousand bucks versus oh, yeah. if you don't do that, you can write off. You can, there's, a, there's a credit for dependent care expenses, but it's pretty yeah. small sometimes. And right. maybe not as advantageous as getting that deduction above the line. Yeah. And and, and these are situations where it's, it's great to have a team that's helping you navigate this. Right. It's great to have a good CPA you work with. It's great to have a good advisor, et cetera, because they can help you with these decisions and guide you in the right way. I find that when open enrollment comes and I know it's different for every company, but for most companies, it's in no- October, November. It, it, there's so much information to absorb. People just kind of check the box. Whatever the HR person says, yeah, you, pr- you should probably do this one. Okay, I'm done. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because when, when you look at those packets, it's confusing. It's very confusing. And they've tried to, every company is different. And companies now, are, they're all competing with each other in terms of you know, who offers the, the best benefits. And they're trying to dumb it down where they, they put, everything in like a 20 page PowerPoint, but even the PowerPoints are confusing, especially if you don't do this for a living. You know, and most people are caught up in their daily work, 
load anyways. They just don't have the time. Those, okay, this works. I, you know, my, my company pays for X amount, I'll be fine. So it's just really just getting an understanding of that, which healthcare plans, you know, make the most sense for you. I think also too, there's like employee assistance programs that could help you as well. Uh, estate planning is a huge part of any financial plan. And now companies are offering you to get at minimum basic estate plans and they give it to you for free, mm-hmm. which I think is a huge benefit. So especially if you have kids or you own a home or what have you, you should definitely have some type of will and trust in place. Right. And at you know, and at minimum, if your company sponsors that, take advantage of it. It's a one that go, gets overlooked quite yeah, often. Yeah, that's a nice benefit. Mm-hmm. What about you know having your kind of like stock options, RSUs, that yeah. kind of stuff? Understanding how they navigate yes. that. What what do you see from the client perspective they're facing there that they're maybe not doing efficiently or not thinking about? Yes, great question. It's my favorite one to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, obviously being here in the Silicon Valley. You know, stock options is is a hot topic, and I'm sure here at Willer Willer Accountants too, Willer CPAs, it's a big topic of conversation. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and the number one thing we try to do is just help them avoid any mistakes. I think there's a misconception, um, and not to not to get too granular, but I think there's a misconception on how certain options work versus the other. Obviously, RSUs, restricted stock units, are very popular now. Most of the major companies are starting to offer that, mm-hmm. and so we just want to make sure that. A, you know, you know when you vest, right? Usually it's like a four-year vesting period. So I had a client once thinking they had X amount of uh, of shares into a company and restricted stock units, but they they only had a quarter of it. <laughs> they didn't realize that they had to wait three more years, and so they already so you can take this job and shove it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. They're already playing their exit strategy. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. We, that's not how it works. So that. Number one is making sure you understand vesting and if it's, you know, a, a, a RSUs versus any other type of stock option. And then it's really, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this stock or what are you going to do with, with this? I call it an extra bonus that you get. What, do you, what are you going to do with this once you get it? Mm-hmm. And what I find is probably eight out of 10 times is people just want to leave it there. They're gamblers. And I said, it's the worst thing you could do <laughs> is to have this over-concentrated stock position. And, you know, we've all kind of lived through, you know, the end rounds of the world and the world comes and, and et cetera. We've seen, uh, you know, stocks, we've seen Fortune magazine say, buy this stock, it's the greatest thing ever. And then the couple months later, sell, get out, you know, right. <laughs> we've all seen the headlines. So helping them diversify those over-concentrated stock positions and, they have goals, for example, if they want to buy houses, if they want to fund, you know, kids education, if they need to bulk up their emergency fund, you know, whatever it is that's relative to their plan, we'll help them direct that and help them understand to the dollar amount, you know, here's how much you're going to get after tax. And this is what you need to do with this amount to accomplish the goals that that you have. So yeah, diversifying it. Yeah, I like that. One, you know, avoiding mistakes, obviously, because I've seen some like hugely costly mistakes from just not understanding basics about how the rules work. You know, a five minute phone call would have avoided most of these mistakes, mm-hmm. you know, with your accountant. <laughs> and then um, diversification, obviously. People mm-hmm. forget that if they have stocks that are vesting in the future, they're just going to get more and more concentrated. So mm-hmm. I have uh, more experienced clients who have been through the first dot com boom and their attitudes sell early and often. And that's what they do. They just like sell mm-hmm. as soon as possible generally because they know they have more stock coming anyway. Yeah. And if the stock is going to go up because the company's doing well, 
then great. The value of those future shares that are going to invest is going to be higher. So that's awesome, you know, but you don't need to hang on to the ones that you have there. Versus now I'm starting to see again a little bit people are willing to like write it out a little more. And we haven't had a, a major recession now in like over 10 years or basically 10 years. So it was like, yeah, it's about September of 2008, right? When yeah. the S started really hitting the fan. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's been a while now and yeah. it's nothing yes. lasts forever. It Those millennials haven't again. been through it yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a tough lesson to learn. Yeah. Even if yeah. your company is great. Even the best of breed companies can still get hammered by macroeconomic events if there's a recession or something yep. really bad that happens. And so, you know, they all uh, a rising tide lifts all boats and can make crappy <laughs> companies look good. And, uh, by, you know, uh, I don't know, a tidal wave sucking all the water out can take mm-hmm. them all down as well. You know, so yeah. you got to just sell early and often diversify. Super important. Exactly. And, Tax is definitely part of the conversation, but mm-hmm. it shouldn't be the tax tail shouldn't wag the dog. Why tell right. my clients, you know, I mean, sure. Let's look at just the big picture here. And if you got to pay extra tax this year, you're in top bracket because you got to mm-hmm. exercise the options. And so be it. You exactly. know, let's just make sure we plan accordingly. But yeah, the planning comes into effect there because we've seen clients that haven't planned for that. And they're like, oh, great. I have, you know, hardly anything withheld for this. And then they have a huge tax liability of the year. Yeah. Cash flow planning, mm-hmm. knowing what to expect, making sure money set aside for taxes, obviously, mm-hmm. as you you pointed out, let them know how much money to the dollar they're going to have that they can keep right. for their goal and then how much is really not theirs to keep. Yeah. Maybe they can just temporarily invest it in a savings account until they got to pay it in April or the next yeah. year or whatever kind of thing. So and avoiding penalties, yeah. of course. Yeah. And then, and also just to piggyback on that more. So when we talk about avoiding mistakes, so oftentimes if, uh, you know, if you're working for one of these tech companies that, you know, went IPO and your shares are worth, you know, 50,000 plus you get this, you know, huge windfall of cash. And there's, there's so many different places you can put that money. You know, there's, there's people that say, I want to buy rental properties, not understanding ramifications of that. Or there's some people that say, well, I want to start doing options trading on my own, or, you know, (laughs) I want to, you know, put all my money into this, you know, certain insurance policy, you know, there's like all these different ideas that come your way. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where, we bring value as well is just having that objective view and say, Hey, look, you know, we're acting in, in your best interest here as fiduciary. You shouldn't put this $50,000 into this investment because of X, Y, and Z. You could take my advice if you want, but you know, I'm, I'm looking out for you and you'd be surprised how many clients that come up or how many clients I meet with and they're getting cold calls by this company or that company, or they're getting enticed to do something because everything seems like, oh, I can triple this if I do this investment in the next two years. Or everyone's kind of looking for that get rich quick right. <laughs> type of opportunity. And and I'm here just to to set the proper expectation that most people get wealthy over time. And it's very rare that, you know, unless you're the CEO of the company or founder or something like that or family member, it's very rare that you're going to get wealthy within a couple of years. Hey, Eric, you, you mentioned that you, mm-hmm. you stay objective. How do you stay objective? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. So we don't get compensated purely off commission, right? So if I'm a if I'm a you know a loan officer, a real estate agent, of course I want somebody to invest and buy a home, right? Because that's how I eat. That's how I bring food home and that's how I survive. If I sell insurance and it's the only way I get paid. Of course, I want them to invest in these certain type of insurance products. Not saying that they're bad, but you know that's how I, I, I'm I'm biased for them to put all their money here because it's gonna 
be better for my wallet (laughs) versus then buying a a piece of property. You know, so when we sit down with clients, you know, we're we give them the option on how they want to work with us. So oftentimes it's just they pay for advice, right? They pay us a nominal fee. We'll do their financial plan and we'll just give them advice and we're not earning commission on anything. So we're just objective in that regard. And I'm not tied to any broker dealer or I'm not tied to any insurance company or mutual fund or investment firm. We're completely independent, which is why I want to start Wealth Builders is so I could be 100% independent and not have sort of that conflict of interest, you know, working for one brand, for example. Yeah. You know, I talked about this before. There's just so much in yep. the way of like hidden fees in the financial industry mm-hmm. where there people are paying them, but they're just buried through so many things. It just yeah. basically usually gets buried in like the rate of return somehow. And so that's a little bit lower than it otherwise would be, but you wouldn't know it because the fees buried in there yeah. or like on mortgage stuff, it's like part of the interest rate basically, but it's always just like, it's buried somewhere in there and you're paying, you're, yeah. you are paying for it, yeah. you know, absolutely. But it doesn't feel that way, the way they market it, you know? Mm-hmm. So knowing that is super important. Absolutely. Well, if it sounded like we cut off the podcast a little briefly there, we did. We actually ended up talking with Eric for over an hour and we had a really great conversation. So we thought this would be a really good opportunity to split the podcast up into two parts. So we're going to go ahead and return with our next episode where Eric's going to go into his six financial planning tips for Henry. So stay tuned for our next podcast. That's all for today's episode of the Debit This, Credit That podcast. As always, if you have a question, you can contact your Wheeler Accountants Prepare or submit a question online at our website in the Ask Wheeler section at the bottom of the page. Please remember to follow us on social media for regular updates at Wheeler CPAs and on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks for listening as we help you solve for accounting.